What is up, y'all? Kevin Kuhn here from Athlete Factors. This is the Athlete Factors podcast. My guest today is Dr. Jose Antonio. How are you, how are you today, sir? I am doing great. It is uh, actually a little cloudy today in South Florida. However, I did get a chance to go out in the ocean, and uh, oddly enough, I was the only one there. <laughs> nobody, <laughs> nobody was at the ocean. So. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> I That's the like best. So for those who aren't familiar with you and your work, you are an associate professor at uh, Nova Southeastern University in Florida, as well as co-founder and CEO of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. Um, I think you're also a fellow of the NSCA and the ISSN, so you uh, you stay pretty busy in the industry. Yeah, yeah. In fact, um, this probably this definitely predates you. I've been attending. The NSCA conference is probably going back to the 1980s. Wow. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah, I, I was attending it before some of my college students were even born. So <laughs> been around a long time. That's awesome. <laughs> That's so cool. So um, the the main reason I wanted to get you on is is really because of your wealth of knowledge, specifically in the area of protein research and higher protein diets. So, um, I've been, uh, I've been going through a a book that I recently wrote and, um, working on developing some material for, uh, for Facebook posts and Instagram posts. And as I was going back through my, uh, chapter on protein, uh, the high protein area of the book, I actually mentioned you and your research quite a bit. So, um, if you will, please give us a little bit of a, an overview on the protein research that you've done, and maybe, if you will, talk about uh, where that research is going and, and what you'll be working on in the future. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I, I think the story starts, let's go back to when I was an undergrad. Uh, this is back in the 1980s, before I believe you were born. So I'm a mid, <laughs> mid-80s baby, so 1986. <laughs> Right. Oh, wow. So, okay. Um, yeah, Ronald Reagan was president. Um, this is 1983. I took a nutrition course, the very first one. Um, and I believe, God, this is a long time ago. I believe it was taught out of biology because I don't think there was an actual nutrition department. Mm-hmm. I got my bachelor's in biology. At, this is at the American University in Washington, D.C. And so I love nutrition. I always had an interest in it. There just weren't many offerings. So when, when I got a chance to take this nutrition course as an undergrad, I was like, wow, this this will be really cool. And what struck me was uh, the professor had said that uh, if you eat a high protein diet, and she made reference to bodybuilders and athletes, that it's bad for your kidneys. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I mean, what do you know as an undergrad, really? I'm just thinking, well, that seems really weird because <laughs> my uncle was a bodybuilder. And I used to watch him work out and he would consume a lot of protein mm-hmm. <laughs> and he seemed quite healthy. So I'm thinking, <laughs> wait a minute, he eats a lot of protein. In fact, he's in really good shape. He's really healthy. Where's this thing about protein and kidneys and all that coming from? And, you know, uh, it in a way it prompted me to more to look into that more. So I actually got my master's degree at Kent State University. And my advisor at the time was Peter Lemon, who did, again, protein research. Mm. Um, But he but he didn't do any really many long term studies, meaning 
have someone consume a lot of protein, follow them for weeks, months, or years, see what happens. Mm-hmm. So that was really kind of missing. But he also thought that, you know, there's no evidence that protein is, you know, bad for your kidneys. Um, so all along, what what people in the clinical nutrition field have been saying, too much protein is bad for you, didn't jive with what you see in the real world, athletes consuming a lot of protein. So mm-hmm. they both can't be right. <laughs> you know, one side is wrong. So. Mm-hmm. So fast forward, you know, I'm a, a, an associate professor at Nova Southeastern University. And, and if we go back about six, I think six or seven years ago, I, I would have really many conversations with students and particularly some of the bodybuilders, because you know, there's always bodybuilders who are exercise science majors. Mm-hmm. And I recall, uh, you know, uh, one guy in particular who, and actually, <laughs> this is a story you could pretty much tell at any university. There's always that guy or guys or even girls they carry their water jug. They have their Tupperware with food and they're eating during class. And it's like, well, I guess you got to eat. So <laughs> it's, it's almost like a badge of honor that they have to have food and a jug of water with them. It's like, you know, God, you guys must be the thirstiest, hungriest people ever. <laughs> every two hours, man. Every two hours. I think that's Dr. Willoughby. I, I think that was more like every 30 minutes or something. Yeah, I, I remember getting emails from him. Every once in a while, he would mm-hmm. he would put our uh, our graduate uh, program on blast half hour before our class would start. He'd be like, "Hey, I haven't eaten. Can somebody stop by Quiznos? Get me a sub, double protein. I'll, I'll hook you up with something, you know, when I can. But I, I've got to eat." So that is so funny. That is so funny. But oh, yeah. but actually, that's the mentality. So I remember asking this guy, you know, just out of, off the cuff, because I always saw him eat. It's like, well, how much do you actually eat? How much protein do you eat? And nobody is as good as bodybuilders, particularly male bodybuilders, in rattling off what they eat because they know exactly how much protein they get. Mm-hmm. And he said something like somewhere between 300 and 400 grams a day. And I'm thinking, well, that's, that seems like wow. a lot. So I did. The, <laughs> yeah. I did the calculation in my head and he was eating, you know, something like three grams per kilo. And I'm like, wow, that's a lot of protein. I mean, that's, (laughs) that's a lot of work. I mean, let's face it. Eating can be work, whether you're an endurance athlete or a strength power athlete. Mm -hmm. And so it really prompted the question. And here's the thing, even, even though we pursued that first study in the back of my mind, I kept telling myself, this is a waste of time because I know it's not going to harm you, Mm -hmm. but might as well do it. So that first study where we uh, had subjects consume two grams per uh, two grams per pound or 4.4 grams per kilo per day for uh, eight weeks, we didn't change anything. We didn't change training, diet, nothing. We just made sure they ate a lot of protein, mm-hmm. and nothing, and nothing happened. Like as in nothing, body composition didn't change, um, hmm. which we thought was really odd. I'm like, wow, so you can like basically drown yourself in whey protein and nothing happens. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> it, it just seemed odd and people were like well it's not possible well maybe it is possible because of the thermic effect of protein right maybe it affects appetite i mean there's all sorts of things so hmm. we had the problem with uh i don't know if, have you ever tried to consume two grams per pound of protein it's no it's i, I can't, can't do it no you know no what? way <laughs> i'll take you back i might be able to do it once a year when i go to a brazilian steakhouse for my birthday like ah, yes i can do it then but that's probably about it yeah yeah you know what i might yeah i love brazilian steakhouses they just keep slicing that meat and it's mm-hmm. oh yeah maybe for one for one day i could do three grams per kilo but after that <laughs> i think the following three days it would be like 0.1 grams per kilo. <laughs> i would be full um yeah so but here's what's interesting when we first did that study 
Um, a lot of these subjects complained about being constantly hot, mm-hmm. um, sweaty. A lot of them said they would sweat uh, at night, so they would like, and it's hot enough in Florida, but now you're hot because you're eating a ton of protein. Mm-hmm. And so they, they would just crank the fan in their bedroom so that they could cool off while they were trying to sleep. <laughs> so I thought, well, that's, that's kind of odd. <laughs> you know. So we decided, okay, it's hard for people to do two grams per pound or 4.4 grams per kilo. So we decided, let's drop it for the next study to about three grams per kilo. But major change, we're going to make them all follow sort of a traditional bodybuilding type program. Mm-hmm. And again, eight-week study, we looked at kidney function as well. We did some blood work. Um, And interestingly, both groups, the lower protein and the higher protein group, gained the same amount of lean body mass, but the higher protein group lost more fat mass, even though they were consuming more calories in the form of protein. Um, But also, the safety data, when you look at the safety data, there was no harm to uh, renal function. I mean, that's always the bugaboo, you know, uh-huh. um, your kidneys, uh, you know, it'll be negatively affected when in fact, no, not, there's no evidence. You can go up to three grams per kilo. Nothing's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so that told us a lot of things that one, the primary driver still of skeletal muscle hypertrophy is not diet. It's still training. You got to train. And just like in the endurance sports, the primary driver of adaptation is not diet. It's still training. If you don't train, the rest of it's kind of, you know, who cares how you eat? <laughs> you've right. got to train. Yep. You know, so um, um, the question that came out of that second study was, okay, it's safe for eight weeks, but is it safe for longer? And in my mind, knowing that I know a lot of guys and girls who eat a lot of protein, I'm like, of course it's safe longer. But mm-hmm. – you know, all the PhDs on Twitter and on Instagram and on <laughs> Facebook, <laughs> you know, they're like, well, eight weeks is nothing. What about a year? Maybe mm. it's harmful after a year. And I'm like, okay, okay. So we did <laughs> We did a one-year study. Holy cow. Yeah, and we got – what we did was we got the most dedicated – and these are all guys because guys love this shit mainly because they get to get free protein. They're like, you're giving me free protein? <laughs> I'll volunteer for a whole year. I'd yeah. have to buy protein for a year. So we followed <laughs> these bodybuilders for a whole year. They were consuming about not quite, it was about three grams per kilo on average, uh, these guys. Mm-hmm. Nothing happened. Their kidneys fine. In fact, we did blood lipid panel. Blood lipid panel was fine. Everything is fine. In fact, if you didn't know that these guys were bodybuilders or athletes of any kind, and you just looked at their lipid panel and you looked at their uh, we did a comprehensive metabolic panel looking at organ function and whatnot. You'd say, wow, these guys are healthy, super mm. healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but what's funny is, okay, so we did the one-year study. Someone said, well, a year's not, not, not long enough. Of course. <laughs> of course it's not long enough. <laughs> I'm like, they're like, what happens after 10 years? I'm like, oh, who's going to do a 10-year study? Come on. <laughs> you know, so, so I was slightly um. annoyed. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to get the five most dedicated guys. So we basically narrowed it down to the five guys who are really pretty serious bodybuilders. And they're like, you're giving me protein for another year? Okay, I'll do it. So (laughs) five guys averaging 3.5 grams per kilo. So these guys are eating a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Again, after two years, nothing. (laughs) Kidney function fine, blood lipids. Everything is fine. So, So to me, you know, as we follow these studies along and one question is answered, then a new question arises. What we find is this. I'll try to summarize those. And then I want to mention some of the bone data in women Mm -hmm. is if you want to increase lean body mass, it has to be coupled with resistance training. If you don't change that, lean mass isn't going to go up. 
-hmm. On the flip side, it seems that if you want to drop fat mass, in addition to exercise in general, eating more protein seems to help promote that for whatever reason, whether it's the thermic effect of it or non-exercise activity thermogenesis, it somehow promotes it. So the idea that you can eat too much protein and it's wasted just doesn't make sense because if you don't use it for normal protein turnover, you're going to oxidize it as fuel. Mm-hmm. So it's it's never wasted. And I, and I always found that odd. Well, all that protein is wasted. Well, no, your body doesn't waste it. It uses it. Mm-hmm. Um, and also we found, and, and this is not a surprise to athletes and most sports science people, that it doesn't cause any harm to renal function or or liver function or whatnot. Now, there is a caveat to that because it's usually like physici- physicians will bring up to me. They're like, well, when we're dealing with CKD, chronic kidney disease patients, blah, 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 we got to limit protein blah, you know, intake or whatever. And I'm not even convinced you have to do that, but let's assume that to be true, that protein intake needs to drop um, when you have compromised renal function. Because think about it, ill protein, now you're dealing with loss of lean mass and sarcopenia and all that other stuff. So mm-hmm. it creates another har- harmful side effect. Um, well, if th- the thing with high protein intakes is there's only really one group of people that purposely do it. And those are athletes or mm-hmm. people who compete. Uh, they're endurance athletes to consume that much, mainly because they eat such a large volume of food. And mm-hmm. then there's uh, strength power athletes who do that because they're, they, they're cognizant of, of protein, their protein needs or, and how much they should take in. So, so you're dealing with a very select group of people who one train like crazy Two, their body composition is definitely better than average, you know, <laughs> tend to be lean. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're dealing with that unique, a population, you can't to say, well, proteins, you know, high protein intakes might be bad for you. Well, the people who do it are in great shape. They tend to be quite healthy and quite fit. I always mm-hmm. tell people, you know, you're not going to find a sedentary person you know, uh, um, shopping at Walmart or Target looking for a tub of whey protein. They don't do that. They're looking for a bag of bur- uh, Doritos. You know? <laughs> you know, so, you know, the idea that, you know, people, oh, if I eat a lot of protein, first of all, men, not many people can handle that much protein, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think that's the caveat that people need to understand that it's only people who train a lot that will purposely do this. Now, a little sidebar here. In addition to, well, those studies aren't long enough, the other complaints I got, I get these weird complaints. Uh, well, how come, how come you're not studying women? More women. I'm like, oh, my God. You know, no one's happy. I got to study somebody, uh, mm-hmm. somebody else besides these. And I always say, well, you know, guys, I don't know what your experience was at Baylor, but I have an easier time for whatever reason getting guys to volunteer for these studies than girls. It's, yep. it, it, I'm like, if, I, if a girl won't volunteer, how am I going to do study on women? I, I can't. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, so um, we decided to get a select group of very highly trained women, put them on a higher protein intake, and basically do a simple pre-post study looking at bone mineral density, lumbar spine uh, bone mineral density, just to see because people have said, well, protein's bad for your bones. Mm-hmm. And after a year, of course, nothing happens. But here's the caveat. I you know, always tell people, well, these women train like crazy. <laughs> these, you know, so, of course, women train like crazy, eating a lot of protein. Why would their bones get worse? I mean, right. it, it wouldn't get worse. So it, you, you, almost, you can't really separate the training part from the diet part because these are people who always combine it. It's sort of like right. 
you know, two wheels of a bicycle, you got to have both wheels. And so you can't really separate it. Whereas <laughs> the sedent, you know, the sedentary person isn't going to, is not going to purposely consume a high protein diet. And I think that's, the audience needs to realize that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's a completely different mindset. I, I agree. It's they're uh, they're mutually exclusive, right? Is that am I thinking of the correct thing there? Like they always oh, go uh, together, right? Oh, they're mutually inclusive. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and in fact, um, we uh, you know uh, I typically will give. Um, uh, my wife is a uh, she coaches cross country and track uh, at a high school literally down the street and once a year I'll give a talk to the cross country kids and you know high school kids their attention span is really high so, <laughs> so I deliver one message you know, just one because <laughs> if you deliver two messages they're not going to remember anything so mm -hmm. the, one, the one message I tell these kids is first of all I know all of you eat like crap because you do. That's what high school kids do. And you can because you're young and you can get away with it. <laughs> try, try to consume a protein shake after you train. That's all I ask. Mm -hmm. It'll help you recover. And mm -hmm. then eat all the other crap you like. Eat your burgers, eat your pizza, drink your Coca-Cola, whatever. But if you have that shake post-workout, you may not feel an immediate benefit because, you know, recovery is recovery. Some days you, you, you feel better, some days you don't. But in the long run, if you do that one thing, it'll it'll go a long ways. And I'd say 25 to 30 percent of the kids, they get it and they actually start doing it. And the rest are like, yeah, whatever. I mean, let's face it. You've seen kids in college. They could go out, you know, for a bender and they wake up and they're semi hungover. And one hour later, after drinking coffee, they're like, perfect. Yep. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how you do it. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't do it. I can't do it. You know, so. That's the problem with youth. It's uh, it's uh, wasted on the young. <laughs> <laughs> that it is. <laughs> so that uh, that reminds me of something. Um, one of the first things, um, while I was at Baylor, that that I that I actually heard you say, um, while I was studying with Dr. Willoughby, uh, I think we were talking about the effectiveness of of you know certain supplements and and kind of. You know, there's this there's this idea in the, even in the industry now that's like, hey, don't don't waste your money on supplements. Like, there's there's these priorities that you need to follow, and so if you're, it's better to not waste money on protein if you're not going to improve your diet. So, um, what you just said kind of really resonates with me because there's a lot of times where people just aren't willing to overhaul their diet to increase their protein intake but they can make small changes like incorporating a protein shake after they train and uh so one of the things that i think you said was um uh i think it had to do with creatine monohydrate like you don't have to change everything to get benefit right. from creatine monohydrate right like you right. can just take it and it, you're gonna see some benefits so mm -hmm. um so with that said what are uh, what are some of the uh, there's a lot of supplements out there that work mm -hmm. a little bit and there's a lot of supplements out there that don't work at all and then there's this <coughs> spectrum so for specifically for endurance athletes and maybe youth athletes what are what are your top three to five supplements that you recommend uh, okay before because you actually you bring up an interesting question prior to that question before I answer that 
I want to bring up the notion of, of fixing up your diet before taking a supplement. Because I, actually, I hear that a lot. And I actually hear it from my colleagues, and they're all wrong. I'll tell you that. They're all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Here's why they're wrong. And let's take uh, the top three most studied supplements, uh, creatine, caffeine, and carbs, right? Uh, I guess you could throw water in there. Water technically is an ergogenic aid. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no evidence that you have to change your diet for creatine to work, for caffeine to work, for carbs to work. There's like none. In fact, all those studies, they didn't change diet. In fact, I think every creatine study, they didn't control for diet. They just mm. said, you get a placebo, you get creatine. Or the beta-alanine studies, you get beta-alanine, you get a placebo. They didn't mm-hmm. change diet. So I've always found it odd that sports scientists, and I'd say if I were to poll all the PhD sports scientists, I'd say nine out of 10 would say, yep, clean your diet before you take a supplement. And I'm thought, I'm thinking, that's purely an emotional position. That's not a scientific position because supplement studies typically are done to look at the effects of a supplement, not the effects of a supplement with a change in diet. Mm. Now, you and I know there's nothing more difficult to change than your diet. I mean, I think... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to me, I, I would say, in fact, you'd probably agree if someone said, would you rather train an extra hour a day or change your diet? Most people are like, I'd rather train more. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to change the way I eat. So that's right. So the the idea that I one, you don't have to change your diet for one for a supplement to work, um, particularly, you know, for endurance athletes, I think. And this is where bodybuilders are slightly ahead in terms of, of how they perceive supplements. They know they need a supplemental protein just because it's hard to eat that much protein. Mm-hmm. Endurance athletes, um, I, I know they're fine with carbohydrate because based on their experience, they know if they drink a sports drink or consume sugar, it seems to help. Yep. Caffeine, and this is what I found uh, find odd. I'd say 50% of endurance athletes don't use any caffeine, which it's like, well, that's kind of weird. I mean, because there's a lot of data on caffeine. Mm-hmm. Um and you don't have to, in fact, you could have a crappy diet and caffeine will still work. Um, so f- for the endurance athlete, I think caffeine uh, is one of the best, uh, certainly carbohydrate pre and during a race or pre and during training. Um, mm-hmm. Although if you race fasted, you should probably train fasted, uh, depending on the nature of the race. Mm-hmm. Um, beta alanine is great for endurance athletes. The nitrite, nitrates, um, beetroot. Although that stuff tastes like crap. Mm-hmm. I've tried it. I, I, I try it. I try so hard to like, I'm like, I know this stuff works. I read the literature, but I can't drink it. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I can't. I don't know if you've tried it, but. I've tried it. Oh, Somebody's got to fix that. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I, I, how did subjects drink this stuff before being exercise tested? I, I don't, I, I just don't know. Um <laughs> <laughs> but those are, you know, to me, those are for endurance. I'd say, I'd say your top three are caffeine, caffeine, sugar, and I guess all of those tend to be combined with water. I mean, sports drink mm-hmm. typically has caffeine, sugar, and water. Beta alanine would be another one. Creatine, you know, what's interesting? Creatine, I think, is valuable for all endurance athletes, with the caveat that if you're a distance runner, if you gain body weight, it might actually. It may be a detriment because of the body weight gain. However, if you're a cyclist, mm-hmm. um, if you pat, like I do a lot of stand-up paddling here. If you're a paddler or a canoeist or a kayaker, it helps because your body weight is is carried. I mean, you're on top of something, so you don't actually have to move your body. But for most of them, it helps. I think it helps quite a bit because it increases lean mass, 
and it, and it should increase power output. You know, if you're in a, what I call a power endurance sport, mm-hmm. um, but you definitely don't have to clean up your diet. I, no, I mean, imagine that if you actually have to, had to have a good diet to take a supplement, no one would take any <laughs> supplements. Like nobody. <laughs> yeah. I, I hear, uh, fairly often, like when people get a supplement, like I see it on message boards and all over Facebook and stuff like that, where people are like, I bought this supplement and it didn't work. And then somebody will, will follow up that comment with a comment that says, well, that's because your diet sucks. It's like, well, if the, if their diet was better, there's no guarantee that there would be any change. Maybe the supplement just doesn't actually work. Or maybe, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, they're a quote unquote non-responder because, People like to talk about that being an issue as well. Um, yeah. yeah. And also, you know, I always wonder, I, like, what supplement are they talking about? Like, for instance, if you get a, a runner or a cyclist and you have them consume supplementary protein just to bump their protein intake up, it's it's difficult to get a to measure a performance benefit because it really affects you more as a recovery agent. Mm. Um, in fact, it, it, you know, let's, let's look at the use of illegal drugs, particularly in cycling. I, I was watching this, I think 30 for 30 with Lance Armstrong and, mm-hmm. and he, even from a young age, he was beating everyone. So it's not like he needed drugs to beat other people. I think what eventually happened was at the highest level, particularly in the tour, they're all taking androgens and EPO and you name it. So all of them are basically, you know, taking uh, uh, performance enhancing drugs so mm-hmm. even there you don't you don't even have to clean up your diet for EPO to work or EPO mm-hmm. um, if your red cell count goes up it goes up and your max VO2 goes up um, androgens <laughs> and this is what I wanted to go to androgens or any kind of testosterone derivative a lot of people view that as a performance enhancing drug when technically it's it's more of a recovery drug because you recover so fast, you're, you could get out on your bike, you could go running, you could whatever. You could get out there and beat your body, and the next day you recover. Mm-hmm. That's how it helps you. So protein, obviously not as potent as these drugs, but it's a recovery agent so that you could beat yourself up, beat yourself up. The next day you're like, okay, I'm a little sore, but I'm not so bad. I can still train. And that's the value of it. And, and that's, that's actually hard. That's a hard message for endurance athletes to get because – Let's face it, within, the great thing about endurance sports is you have a clock. You know exactly how fast you are. Mm-hmm. And they obsess over their times. It's, <laughs> it's like they think they're supposed to get a PR, a PV, every race. I'm like, <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, my God, I was five seconds slower. I'm like, well, what did you expect, to be five seconds faster every race? They obsess over their times. You know? <laughs> it's, it's kind of like bodybuilders obsessing over percent fat. No, endurance athletes, oh, my God. I was one second slower, you know, <laughs> like, oh, God. I, but then they always say, hey, isn't it more important where you place? They're like, yeah, but I want to place, but I also want to be fast. Mm-hmm. That's very true. <laughs> and they're never happy. <laughs> nope. We're, we're slightly obsessed and uh, we always want to be faster. You what's all- your sport? What's your sport? I uh, I ran cross country and track in high school and college. So my best event in college was the uh, 3K steeplechase. Ah, steeple. Yeah. What was your uh, PR in the five five thousand? My best 5K was right around 1530, 1540 somewhere in there. So what do you run now? Uh, I ran <laughs> I ran a 5K a couple months ago, and I think. 
I think I broke 19, which I was I was pretty happy with. <laughs> off of off of basically what? no training, and I won. Wait, so wait, let me ask you this: Does that does when you see that time, does that mess with you knowing that you ran a 15 something? Yeah, <laughs> it hurts. It hurt. Like I finished, and everyone was like, "Wow, good job, you did so good." And I'm like, "No, that was that was pitiful. I'm embarrassed. Don't look at me, please. I'm gonna. I need to go run some more right now." Oh my. Oh my God. That's so typical. But you know what? Mm-hmm. That's, that's my my uh, my wife ran uh, at Drake. Uh, she ran uh, her favorite event was the three thousand. Mm. Um, um, but yes, yeah, she's the same way. It's like not only do you have to be faster, you got to place. <laughs> like, and I'm thinking, wouldn't it be better to finish first and be slower? Well, <laughs> that's kind of a weird consolation prize. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the only time something like that happens is like. Uh, a championship meet where the time doesn't matter. Only the place right. matters. But everywhere else, the time matters. Well, let me sure. ask you this. Your next 5K, let's say, let's pretend you run a 16 next 5K, but you finish third. Would you feel better? <laughs> Look That's at your thinking. Yes and no. Yeah. <laughs> part of me would feel better. <clears throat> but then part, oh, man, I, I want to win. I always want to win. Winning's so more important, right? Winning is always yeah, more important. I think so. I th- it's a race. You got to win. <laughs> it's a, it's a race. Yeah. You can see, you can rationalize away a slow time to say, oh, it was, it was really, it was a tactical race, but you know, oh. so it, we didn't go out real fast. Cause, so you can always ah, rationalize okay. that away, but you can't rationalize away like, oh, I got third. <laughs> it was a really fast time though. Nobody cares. You got third. <laughs> well, no, it could be, hey, those two guys were world class. So of course yeah. I got third. <laughs> there's there always rationalization that works. yeah that's true that's true goodness so uh segueing back to the endurance athletes um so what do you think is a good amount of protein to shoot for um that's a good question i uh i i i tell athletes in general that their baseline protein intake should be about one gram per pound and and it makes it easier for a lot of these high school kids you know they're they tend to be smaller. So, you know, the girls are like 110, 120 pounds. The guys are like 140. So they know exactly mm-hmm. the number of grams they get. But here's what's interesting. When they start thinking about or writing their diet, I'd say 90% of them are underfed on protein. Mm-hmm. In fact, they're kind of surprised. They're like, whoa, I got to eat that much protein? I'm like, yeah, just if you do that one shake, just one, you know, 40 grams, you'll make – that'll go a long way to hitting, hitting your target goal. But, mm-hmm. you know, even that is tough. And, you know, that's, I always say just change one behavior. That's all I ask one behavior. And that's tough for a lot of people. And it's not just runners and, and endurance people, but it's tough for anybody for yeah. whatever reason. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. And it, it can be easy to do one day or a couple days in a row, but being able to do it consistently week after week after week, it's tough. Um, yeah, but that's it. Kind of it takes that long before you start to feel the change or feel the benefit or see like, oh wow, you know, I I am sleeping better. I do wake up more rested. I do feel like I can uh, I can push harder during the workouts because you know because it's it's uh, it's driving recovery like you mentioned mm-hmm. before. So yeah, yeah, and I want to mention um, sort of a to put this in perspective, uh, an anecdote or story working with. Um, locally, there's a master's run here. Her name is uh, Sonia Friend Ewell. 
and she holds i think she holds the record in the mile for the for the masters and she's still mm-hmm. super fast in fact she's still she'll drive up to florida state or wherever they hold these cross-country meets and compete open against college girls mm-hmm. and she does fine and i met her probably god this might have been 10 or 15 years ago and for a brief time we we started a company called run fast and we gave seminars to runners and whatnot and the two things she got from me, which she says has helped her a lot, is particularly as the old, you know, as she gets older, recovery is an issue, is the protein issue. She tries to get a gram per pound, mm-hmm. but also the timing issue, you know, the idea of nutrient timing that because runners, you know, I know bodybuilders want to hear this, but endurance athletes probably beat their bodies up more than strength power athletes. There's just, <laughs> <laughs> it's just more pounding. I mean, your body's yeah. getting wrecked and, and I, people who lift weights, I don't think understand that, but you know, because you're doing a greater volume of exercise for one thing. So your body's just getting beat up. Okay. Um, and, and that's where the idea of nutrient timing, particularly post-workout, is important because there's no reason to wait two hours to eat a meal once you're done training, once you're done running or cycling or swimming, down a shake. Right and then, yeah, an hour, an hour or two later, have your normal meal. Mm-hmm. Those two things, she said, has helped her so much. Those Just those two simple things. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I'll even go further back. I don't know how much you know about track and field, but um, I used to work with a, um, she was a 1500 runner back in the late 90s, 2000. Her name is Susie Favor. Mm-hmm. And again, keep it simple. Eat more protein because runners, runners typically don't have our time eating calories because they can get calories from carbs and fat. Mm-hmm. It's the protein issue. So if you can get more protein, it'll help you recover. So this message I try to repeat to endurance athletes all the time and the ones who follow it, and I'm not just talking runners, we're talking about runners, cyclists, canoeists, uh, paddlers, the ones mm-hmm. who follow it, they're always kind of surprised that, wow, you know what, my body composition is getting better. Um, I feel better. Mm-hmm. You know, does it always translate to better race performance? It's hard to say because, you know, so many things go into a race. I mean, yep. you could feel great. And you finish third, or you could feel like crap, and you finish first. Yeah, I mean that's true. <laughs> that's very true. And so, and so it's, it's so in a way, racing is like you know it's it's one of those things where it's so unpredictable, so many damn variables that it's maddening. Often it's rare to have the perfect race where you wake up, you feel great, you feel recovered. The beginning of the race is great. The middle part, and the end of the race, you feel great. It's like, does that ever happen? <laughs> One, maybe maybe once in a career, twice in a career, every, maybe. like everything goes the way that you plan it out. And like it just it doesn't happen. It's yeah. very rare. Yeah. So so I wanted to give those stories out because in the real, you know, real life, there are at the even at the elite level, simple things help quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, let's uh, let's transition away from that a little bit. What uh, how do you think? Uh, all of this coronavirus uh, situation um, is, and the measures that we're taking specifically, how is that going to affect um, exercise and nutrition research going forward, um, as well as academia, the our industry specifically? Do you think it's going to have a big effect, or? Um, I I think in the short run it'll have a big effect. In fact, um, at my university, we're trying to come up with. Um, uh, I guess documentation that 
at least on the research side. If you if you're a researcher dealing with human subjects, you have to follow this protocol whenever for simple things like when they show up at the lab. How do you greet them? Are you wearing a face mask and all that? Mm-hmm. So I think in the short run, all universities are going to do this, and I think they're doing it more for legal reasons than scientific reasons. Um, mm-hmm. They don't want to be the university that oh my God, a human subject's got coronavirus from whatever when they participate in the study. So they don't mm-hmm. want the legality associated with it, even though college students are like the lowest of the lowest risk. I mean, even if they got it, nothing would happen. I mean, it's just such a low risk. And I don't know what it's like in your state, but in Florida, half of the deaths from coronavirus are the very old in nursing homes with comorbidities. Right. And then the other half are still quite old with comorbidity. So mm-hmm. it's when you when you're dealing with young, healthy population, it, to me, it's not an issue, but it's more of a legal issue than a health issue, I think. Right. So in the short run, it'll affect it in the long run. My guess is by this time next year, I bet you most people will not even think about it. That's just my guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so so for us dealing with human subjects, I mean, I think uh, it'll be an inconvenience at first, but I think we'll be fine. Yeah. Gotcha. And do you think it's going to negatively affect enrollment or or the industry in general going forward? That's a good question. Um, actually, you know what, what it'll affect, excuse me, in California, I think the Cal State's uh, system, they're not going to have sports, I think, all year. Those kids are just transferring to other schools. Right. So in a way, some schools may be helped. They're like, oh my God, all these kids who, who can't do sports in, in the Cal State system, they're going to go to Idaho or Washington or Oregon or some, or maybe the University of California school system. Mm-hmm. It'll, in a way, it'll be a bonanza for them. So it's, you know, in a, in a weird way, it's really a state by state issue because if you look at the middle of the country, I think, you know, other than maybe Michigan, um, it's largely unaffected. Mm-hmm. And to me, like my, I have a daughter that's going to, uh, she'll be a junior at Warburg College in Iowa. Um, it's like, there are no, there aren't any cases there. So mm-hmm. uh, sports will resume. Uh, classes will resume. I don't know of many places where classes will not resume. I think where the negative effect for quote, I'll use our industry sort of in a global sense. I think it might affect the gym gym business that deals with group fitness. Mm-hmm. Um, one-on-one training is easy. I mean, it's easy. You can do one-on-one personal training without having to be close to anyone. So right. I don't think that'll be affected. Um, but, you know, I'm really kind of sad for the gym industry because they, I mean, they've lost a lot of money. And I know in South Florida, I mean, it's a huge industry, the gym industry here. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's... I think some of them are just going to permanently close, um, which is, you know, kind of it's kind of ironic because exercise is probably the single best thing you could do. And that's the part I don't get. It's like and people say, well, you could go outside and exercise. Well, yeah, technically you could you just go outside, walk, do whatever mm-hmm. or run. Um, but a lot of people like going to a place. They like going to a gym. Me personally, I don't. I go to the water. I mean, I'm in the ocean or whatever. But mm-hmm. Some people need that. Some people like it. And, and I think it's it's unfortunate that a lot of local governments have and state governments have prohibited that. Yeah. It doesn't make I, any sense to me. Yeah, I don't think as a whole 
uh, either the gov- really any any level of of uh, uh, of authority is is promoting this idea of hey why don't we just get everybody healthy yeah. like that's a that's a really good way to prevent you know prevent this thing from becoming a serious issue is let's you know let's eat higher quality food let's exercise more but it's kind of like no let's just everybody needs to be separated and, and we just won't interact with anybody and like yeah that's that's you know a band-aid on a on a <laughs> yeah on a, on a serious wound so no it's 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 ironic you bring that up because a lot of my friends you know we're sort of thinking the same in that the focus is on masks vaccines social distancing and that's all year masks vaccines social distancing mm-hmm. but you and i know when you look at death rates and who's dying it's people who are obese people with diabetes who get coronavirus and obviously the elderly i mean but let's face it age is a is a risk factor for heart disease and cancer too so mm-hmm. that's the problem age always wins so but the things you could do to keep yourself healthy the exercise part the eating well part public i haven't heard a public health expert even talk about that like none oh. have you no not at all like, which is which to me is odd because you that you constantly see reports in the news that you know the the majority of deaths in Italy are from the elderly and the elderly with comorbidities they tend to be overweight or diabetic or whatever but then you don't see the follow up of well what could we do to make people healthier right. i mean you can't wait for a vaccine that's yeah. <laughs> crazy it's crazy yep. but but that's that's i think that part of that mentality particularly for people that don't work out or exercise is they put their hands, their their health, um, in the hands of someone else. Whereas, if you you and I have been around people who train all their lives, they tend to take their health, their responsibility for their health, not not having someone tell them. And I think mm-hmm. that's a big difference in how you view the world. And that a lot of people are like, okay, tell me what to do, and we're like, well, we know what to do to keep ourselves healthy and minimize our risk. Right. Yeah. 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 You're telling me now that I have to do things that are going to actually reduce my quality of life and quality of health. I can't go out and be active. I can't. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. That can be a little frustrating. So, um, if you, if you've got some time, can you give us just a a little bit of a, an overview of, of what is the international society of sports nutrition and, and how that got started? Yeah, we uh, we actually started this about 17 years ago because we thought there was a void in the, the, we'll call it the science industry. Uh, Back then, the two big players were the NSCA, which focuses on strength and conditioning, and the American College of Sports Medicine, which I hate to say it, but they sort of are scattered. They focus on everything, which means if you focus on everything, you're an expert in nothing. Mm. At least the NSCA knows they focus on strength and conditioning. But sports nutrition really didn't, it was sort of the black sheep of the academic family. No one thought it was a legitimate field of inquiry. Uh, people, I remember, <laughs> I remember I gave a talk myself and Jeff Stout. This was at the American College of Sports Medicine. God, I wish I remember the year, 1998, nine, something, so, so long ago, I can bear it. But anyways, <laughs> um, we gave a talk on supplements, which we thought, which is rather odd. We, we were shocked that the ACSM accepted a talk on supplements. Hmm. And <laughs> what happened after we were done speaking was just hilarious. It was hilarious. 
I would say half the audience hated us. And <laughs> they were insulting us, just insulting us, um, saying that you can't give a talk about supplements. There's no science. It's all snake oil. I mean, it was just – there were, like, wow. people fighting. And, <laughs> like, literally – and they were yell. I mean, you could tell. And here's what's fun: you could tell the people who 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 trained and loved supplements, they they supported us. But then there was like half the audience who thought we were selling snake oil, which which I thought was weird. I'm like, we're just talking about the sciences. I mean, back then there wasn't a lot. I mean, you had protein, creatine, and, and not much else. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they it got to the point where there was there a fight almost broke out, oh, a fist man. fight. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so finally uh what's his name uh, rick Ryder, he's at texas a&m mm. now mm-hmm. he, he's he, he's in the back of the hall um there's about two or three hundred people in the hall it was like a a long narrow hall that was kind of packed and he gets up from the back and he just says everybody just shut up <laughs> <laughs> let, these, <laughs> let these guys answer the question because People would ask us questions and they wouldn't even give us time to answer before yelling at us. It was like crazy. I'm like, these people are crazy. They're just crazy. (laughs) You know, so after that, you know, we realized, wow, ACSM is very unfriendly when it comes to dietary supplements. So, you know, at the end of the day, we ended up starting this because no one else wanted to, I guess, make, give legitimacy to sports nutrition as a field. Mm -hmm. And um, (laughs) brief story. At that conference, um, ACSM, where we got yelled at, um, <laughs> the then president of ACSM walked up to both Jeff Stout and I. And this is kind of when you hear this, you're like, wow, some, she, they actually said that to you. The president of ACSM, ACSM told us at the time that and I, I can almost remember the quote verbatim because I was shocked. I was absolutely shocked. Said to us, if you guys want to have a career, you may not want to do anything with supplements. Wow. And I heard that, and and I could tell Jeff was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and, and in fact, I don't know if it was Jeff Rye who said it, and one of us said, you mean don't even do research in sports supplements? The answer was yes. Yeah, don't do any wow. if you want to have a career. Yes. And so I was like, that's got to be the craziest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I was in total shock. I was like, whoa, whoa, what, the president of ACSM thinks it's not good to do research? Uh, okay, well, so, <laughs> so fast forward, I, you know, I always tell Jeff, hey, uh, wow. the, the, you got to you gotta have a long, long-term strategy, not a short-term strategy. And so we fast forward to 2020, almost every major university has a sports nutrition or sports supplements course. Mm-hmm. So in a way, we got the last laugh. It's like, hey, <laughs> we were right, even though they thought we were wrong back then. Um, <laughs> it is it is legitimate er, area of, of study. And also, I think what's what's even better is that both endurance athletes and strength power athletes have bought into the idea that sports supplements um, plays as, can, can play a large role in training as diet. Um, and I always think of it as three things. You got you got to train, you got diet. You got supplements, and maybe you could throw in the number four there, sleep. Obviously, sleep is important or recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's, you know, you, and this is what I don't like about some academicians. They, they try to create this hierarchy of you got to do this first, then this first, then this, you know, this second, this third, this fourth. Mm-hmm. To me, there's the one thing that everyone has to do that's more important than anything is train. If you don't train, the rest doesn't matter. 
Like mm-hmm. I always tell people, if you're not exercising, then I'm not going to give you advice on the rest of the stuff because it doesn't matter. So you got to exercise. Mm-hmm. So you, you exercise or train and you have to have a goal. What's your goal? Is it more endurance, more strength, something in between? Without a goal, you can't give diet or, or supplement advice. So once you decide you want to train and you have a goal, now the diet and the supplementation can be put in there because now with something to measure, and I always say it's easier to measure a performance sport than a physique sport because physique is just how you look. Whereas I know how fast you run. I know how fast you bike. I know how much you lift. Mm-hmm. That's easy to measure. So if you could give me something measurable, the diet and the supplementation can easily fit in. So it's, you know, it's amazing how far we've come since the year 2000. Um, Cause you were born what year? 86. 86. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you were, God, you were in high school in the year 2000. What in high school, what was the view of like, was there PE classes in high school <laughs> when you were in high school? There yeah, were. I had, I had phys ed class. Yeah. Okay. Um, did they talk about sports nutrition, even in a sort of cursory? No. No. Okay. No, we didn't <laughs> what about talk. your coaches? What about your coaches? Uh, my cross country and track coach, uh, he, if we had questions about like, you know, anything related to diet, like he would, you know, I think he did his best to, to answer them, but I don't think, uh, like he wasn't going out of his way to say, Hey, here's how you guys need to eat. And here's right. how you sit. Like, it was kind of just like, well, here's what I do, or here's what <laughs> I did, or here's right. what I recommend. But, but it wasn't a negative thing. Like, cause when I was a kid, it was all negative. There was nothing good about sports oh, nutrition. No, no. Okay. Well, you know what's interesting is your generation has basically grown up with sports nutrition as being normal, mm-hmm. whereas most of my life it was not normal. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. So it's it's you know watching it change from the year 2000 to, to 2020, it's it truly is night and day, and I, you know it's hard to inculcate that into young college students because they've grown up, you know, they have social media, they have access to all this information, they have arguments on twitter or facebook about supplements it's now now it's not an argument of whether they're whether it's a legitimate category now it's an argument of which of the supplements are legitimate which was different you know 30 years ago it was like none of them are legitimate so you know we've come a long way (laughs) let's say that awesome so uh, for anybody watching or listening, if they want to reach out to you or follow you or look into the ISSN, what's the best way to do that? Oh, yeah. Um, our website is simple, ISSN.net. I want to let your audience know that um, our national conference is going to be held in Daytona Beach, Florida, September 10th to the 12th. In fact, uh, <laughs> there might be an odd thing in that because ACSM and NSCA were canceled, we may actually get a larger group than normal, mm. which is really, you know, crazy. We're the only ones who didn't cancel our conference. We just, we just uh, postponed it. Mm. Um, so if you like the beach, I would highly recommend you come. Um, if you can't make it, we're, we have some webinars. Um, again, you could go to ISSN.net and look up some of our uh, webinars on different as- aspects related to sports nutrition or sports science. Um, the, probably the easiest place to reach me on social media is probably Instagram. Although I'm on Twitter and Facebook as well, but Instagram, the name on Instagram is the underscore ISSN. And you can find, I post a lot of studies and sometimes goofy memes, whatever, gets people moving. (laughs) (laughs) That way it's entertaining. You learn something and you're entertained. That's the best way to do it. 
exactly. It's memorable. <laughs> yep. Awesome. Awesome. So to, uh, to close us out, um, can you give us, you know, one, one piece of advice or a quote or, or an important piece of information that you think is, is necessary for everybody watching and listening to hear? To me, I think, um, one of the best pieces of advice, I think in general, not just for training or diet or, or whatnot is, and I think I I've used this quote primarily with regards to training, um, and learning, uh, you have to practice a skill and it can be repetitive and repetitive. But if you do it all the time, all the time, all the time, you'll get better at it. And and I use this analogy, like, for instance, um, when I give writing assignments in college, I'd say maybe 10 percent of the students write well. The other 90 percent, let's face it, they kind of suck. They're not very good at writing. Mm -hmm. But it's a skill like anything else. You have to practice it. You don't just suddenly become a great writer. You don't suddenly be become a great power lifter, a great runner. There's a, and this is the part that's interesting, there's repetitive boredom to doing, to getting great at a skill. You mm. just have to keep repeating it. And for people who don't exercise, I don't think they understand that. For those of us who train, to us, we have great training days and we have crappy training days, but we train. Mm -hmm. Whereas to the person who's sedentary and doesn't understand that to them, if it's bad, they're like, well, if it's bad, I just don't want to do it. Whereas it's... It can be bad. It's always repetitive, and but you'll also have good days. And the idea that you have to repeat a skill multiple times over months and years and years and years, a lot of people, I, I, maybe they know it intellectually, but they never sort of embrace it. Hmm. So it doesn't matter what the skills. You want to be great at chess, you better play chess every day. If you want mm -hmm. to be great at golf, you better hit a ball every day. If you want, like I, uh, um, I on occasion do uh, stand-up paddling races in Florida. Mm -hmm. And the ones who are really great at it are the ones who train all the time. I mean, it, <laughs> it's, it's not like there's a secret out there, you know? It's yeah. like these guys bust their butts training all the time. I mean, and that applies to bodybuilding, powerlifting, distance running, distance cycling. It's it's repetitive. It, And I think it, people have to embrace that repetitive repetitive nature of training or, or whatever skill they want. So, mm. uh, and it's not always, you know, it's not always fun. You know, it's not always fun. <laughs> That's the truth. That's the truth. It's, but yeah. it's like the perfect, it's like the perfect race. You might get it once. <laughs> That's right. Maybe twice. <laughs> yeah. But the more, yeah. the more you're doing that, that monotonous, not so fun training, the more opportunities to have that perfect race. I think yes. so. If, exactly. if you're putting in that work when it's not, when you're not having a great day and when, you know, when everybody else is like, man, it's raining, why would I be outside right now? Or, or you know, whatever the case may be, and you still got to do it. Like, you know, yep. you, you don't know how things will, will, the conditions will be on race day, you know? That's so if, true. if you're already used to those conditions because you've trained through it a hundred times, then it's not going to affect you come, come time, you know, time to go. So true. Um, if training is harder than racing, then racing will be easy, right? That, that's that's so true. That's awesome. Dr. Antonio, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Um, I've learned a ton from you, so this has been such a, you know, such a pleasure for me. And, uh, and yeah, hope to have you on again in the future sometime to, to talk more shop and, uh, yeah, and definitely. learn more from you. Will you be attending any conferences this year or are you stuck at home? Uh, you know, I've, 
I've basically got all my CEUs for NSCA because there's like a million different webinar things for free oh, right, right now. <laughs> like this is this is the best year for getting CEUs because there's been like three or four different uh, like weekend long courses where it's like it's free and then you get, you know, your 20, 20 contact hours or whatever to CEUs. Oh, good for so, you. So I don't have to do anything this year, and then, but uh, starting next year, it's it's uh, reporting starts starts over. So, well, uh, think of uh, next year because um, at ISSN you get both NSEA and uh, NSEA CEUs as well. Awesome. In fact, a lot of NSEA members, instead of going to the NSEA national conference, they come to ISSN. So mm. think about that. We're in St. Petersburg, uh, Florida, right on the beach. Yeah, last yeah. time, last ISSN conference I was at was uh, when it was here in Austin. So I'm in Dallas. So oh, okay. I, that was, what, 2015? 20, 2015, yeah, five years ago. Like mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was excellent. I loved it. Yeah. So. All right. Um, but, yeah, I will, I'll do my best to make it out. So thank okay. you again. And, thank uh, you. Uh, yeah, we'll see, you, we'll see you in the future. Okay, have a great day. All righty.